It's time to build your momentum to start off your new year right with our evidence-based psychology and yoga podcast delivered directly to your earbuds five days a week. That's right. We are going to be replaying 60 of our top episodes five days a week. So we're going to be featuring expert insights, practical tips that will help you achieve your mental and physical wellness goals. From reducing anxiety and stress to improving your focus and concentration, the Wisdom for Wellbeing Momentum Season is the perfect companion for your yoga, mindfulness practices, and life. So tune in during your commute, while you're walking your dog, or while you're cleaning your kitchen to dive into the latest research and explore the powerful connection between your brain, body, and your best life. I'm looking forward to being in your earbuds pretty much daily as we kickstart your 2023 journey towards a happier, healthier, and more balanced you. So that's why psychological flexibility, one big reason why it's so powerful is that it takes us off the useless effort to distract and deny from our own history and focuses on our attention instead on learning from that coming into the present moment where new things can happen and to do that consciously where freedom of choice is possible and then to begin to build the rest of our history by choice organized around what we deeply care about instead of what we habitually avoid or are afraid of. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Today on Wisdom for Wellbeing, I am absolutely honored to be joined by Dr. Stephen C. Hayes. Dr. Hayes is a Nevada Foundation Professor of Psychology in the Behavioral Analysis Program at the University of Nevada, an author of 46 books and nearly 650 scientific articles. He is especially well known for his work on acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, which is one of the most widely used and researched new methods of psychological intervention over the last 20 years. And as evidence of this, you should listen back to previous episodes and you'll hear a lot about ACT. Dr. Hayes has received several national awards, such as the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy. His TEDx talks have been viewed by over half a million people, and he is ranked among the most cited psychologists in the world. His popular book, Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, has been a best-selling self-help book in the United States. And his new book, A Liberated Mind, has been recently released to wide acclaim and will actually be the topic of our conversation today. But first, I just wanted to share a couple of other interesting tidbits about Dr. Hayes because I think it's really important to understand a little bit about the man that did co-found ACT. I really truly believe that Dr. Hayes is living a life of purpose. 
I actually first had contact with him a number of years ago when I was a student. I reached out and emailed him about one of the papers I'd read of his that I thought was brilliant. And he very, very kindly wrote back. And I guess that just sets the tone that he is really humble and generous in not only his time, but his wisdom. It's actually interesting to know that he decided to be a psychologist in high school because it combined art and science, and he loved both of them. And I wonder if this is one of the really unique aspects of acceptance and commitment therapy, that there is an openness and a creativity that comes with this therapy, as well as the strong evidence base. So while there is an openness to exploring different types of intervention or unique avenues and applications, it's all very well evaluated to know that it's working, to know that it's helping. Dr. Hayes is also so connected and proud of his family. You'll hear about his wonderful wife in today's episode where he actually shares about how his wedding ring is really a value symbol, a symbol of their love. And when he sent through a little bit of a bio, an outline of his history himself, he shares about each of his children and what unique and wonderful individuals they are. I think that's really special to know that not only is Dr. Hayes, you know, an acclaimed academic, a wonderful therapist, but he is someone who is really living from the heart. So without further ado, please let me introduce you to Professor Hayes himself. Welcome to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, Steve. I'm so excited to have you here today. It is a real honor to have the chance to have this conversation with you. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, my my absolute pleasure. So I guess just to start things off, you know, you've recently written a wonderful book called A Liberated Mind. And I was wondering if you'd maybe share a little bit with the audience about what inspired this book. I know it's really, you know, in some ways a memoir, it's your life work. It is, and it took a long time and working on it for 11 years, intensively for five. But, you know, what inspired it was just that uh, we know a number of the processes that are helpful and hurtful to people. They're hurtful if you mismanage them, helpful if you manage them well. And we think over a 40-year period, and I say the we, there's tens of thousands of people around the world who've helped develop this work, either clinically or, or researchers, basic and applied. And we kind of think we've hacked the code. Uh, we kind of, you know, try, we've tried over those uh, four decades to center in on the smallest number of things that do the largest amount of good, the 20% that does the 80% not just in mental health, but also in physical health, but not just that, also in social health and prosperity goals of all kinds, such as uh, um, having relationships at work or being able to manage your business or being able to um, have fun or compete in a, a sport and um, to show leadership skills, et cetera. So uh, we've arrived on a set of what we call psychological flexibility processes and I thought when ACT first became popular, when it kind of uh, came into the cultural scene after about uh, 25 years of development, when it suddenly became um, visible to the culture in, uh, in around 2005, that this book ought to be written. But 
uh, it's a heavy lift because it takes these flexibility processes everywhere. And mm. it's, um, it wasn't ready because the research wasn't there, but it is now. We're sitting on three to 5,000 studies, depending on how you cut it, and about 350 randomized trials. So we can tell a story that's uh, not complicated. It's actually simple. Sometimes research makes things easier, not more complicated. Uh, but that is substantial and a little different than what is out there in the culture. And so uh, I looked at uh, my uh, increasingly wrinkled face and said, dude, it's now or never. <laughs> so we, uh, I've been working really hard about the last five years to bring it to fruition. And it sort of summarizes my life's work, the work of an entire science community, but also brings it to bear to... Uh, uh, almost anything that uh, our listeners might be dealing with. Well, anywhere human mind goes, it's relevant. And the fact that you kind of describe all of these layers for which ACT is useful and effective, that it's kind of like this whole health approach, that it's not just one thing. It's not just strictly, you know, mental health or something cognitive. It expands out. It has a really wide breadth. And I think that's also a real important thing to highlight that this isn't just out of the blue, that this was something that was being built up through the research, through the literature for 25 years before you even, you know, kind of hit um, mainstream, so to speak. Yeah. And then it's been a number of years since, which is yeah. well over a decade since that, I guess, act yeah. emerged on the scene. Yeah, it's been 15 years. And uh, the exciting thing about that is whatever brings you into it, like if there's something that you're dealing with, it could be a anxiety, depression, substance mm -hmm. abuse, it could be things like that, an eating disorder or some kind of struggle. But it could also just be um, sticking to an exercise program or uh, stepping up to the challenges of physical disease or aging or or uh, some of these things I just mentioned having to do with performance or social issues, prejudice, stigma, on and on it goes. Whatever you uh, come into, because we've found that there's a small number of flexibility processes that predict prosperity if you handle them well, and uh, inflexibility processes that predict misery if you uh, do those, uh, where you start isn't where you end up because yeah, maybe, it, maybe it's just uh, struggle with a, a diet or how you're going to raise your kids or something that gets you going. But you don't want to have to relearn the code every time you have some new problem. And the exciting thing about the flexibility work is uh, it's tried and true in so many different areas that uh, you can use what you learn when new things happen and new problems emerge to help walk through those as well. So it's, uh, it's kind of a life process um, that doesn't end, but it applies to, as you say, not just cognition, but emotion and sense of self and uh, your body and your behavior and your motivation. It applies pretty much everywhere that the human mind goes. And when we're talking about these um, psychological flexibility skills, they fit in, I used the word act a moment ago, but I've realized we should probably define that, that this I'll might good, yeah. mean acceptance and commitment therapy, or as you said, it applies to a wide range of areas. I've also heard the term acceptance and commitment training because it could also be yeah. used in non-clinical senses where it's not necessarily therapeutic per se. Could you speak to that yeah, exactly. a little bit? It's wide reaching. Well, in fact, a lot of people listening, I bet you, are doing something, whether it's teaching or coaching or running a business and so forth, where you are 
in the role of uh, influencing, supporting, helping, dealing with other people. And it turns out these uh, flexibility skills are things that you can use in those settings as well. There's people who won Olympic gold medals uh, using ACT. There's people who are running Fortune 100 companies around the world using ACT. Uh, you know, there's a, uh, such a broad variety of uses that, uh, you know, you can come into it and learn what the science is showing and, and have it fit what you want. And yeah, the therapists are important and uh, acceptance and commitment therapy is the bulk probably of uh, what people think about when they think about ACT. But it's a much, much broader one. And I think we've created a kind of community and social support system and so forth where people are not grabby about that or you can't do that you can't use that because that's only for therapists it's, no scientific ideas are to be used by human beings to do good in the work that they do and uh, you'll find something of use to you probably personally and with your family and friends but you'll probably find it also in your work role because most of our uh, the work that we do has something to do with ourselves and other people psychologically and it's only wise to to build that in to the the work that you do. And you described how ACT sort of supports moving towards life purpose. So it's not necessarily always going to be, um, you know, in one domain. These might reach various domains. But I guess would we be able to just first go into the concept of acceptance? Because I actually wasn't aware of the origins of the word acceptance. And I think that fits in really beautifully with this model. Would you Would you share a little bit for us? Sure. Yeah, it's a kind of a summary of this one-two punch of showing up to your history as it echoes into the moment consciously and then allocating your attention towards what you deeply care about and building habits around that. And, you know, the first part we just tag with the word acceptance. It has other elements to it. But the second part we tag with that word commitment has other elements to it as well. And so those two sides of uh, show up and move forward come together in the, the very name of acceptance and commitment therapy or training. But acceptance is a really important part of this set of, uh, you might call them mindfulness skills, uh, that uh, define how it is that we can show up consciously in the present moment with our history, since some of what shows up within us, some of our thoughts and feelings and memories and urges and bodily sensations aren't things that we would necessarily like. It isn't something we'd say, oh, happy, happy, joy, joy, I'm feeling tired today, or I'm angry now, <laughs> yeah. or I'm feeling sad, or I'm worried or anxious. And yet those, the grit and grain of that it is important in life and reflects something that's important in life. Part of what's different about a liberated mind is I really spent the time to dig into what is the positive message that our pain and suffering contains? And you don't get that message unless you're able to use acceptance skills. And it is in the etymology of the word, the, the Latin word, the septeri part, uh, means to receive. Mm -hmm. And one of its connotations, it's still in English, barely there, but it's still in English, is to receive as if to receive a gift. If you have a, something really loved, something that's really precious, a, a family heirloom or something like that, you might say as you give your gift to a friend or family member, here, would you accept this? And you don't mean, would you tolerate it? Would you put up with it? Would you resign yourself to it? Would you give up and take this gift? That doesn't mean that. <laughs> it means, are you willing to take this in by choice? Mm -hmm. I'm offering it to you. 
but I want you to take it in by choice. And when you do that with your own history, when you do that, for example, with a memory, even if it contains difficult stuff, turns out there's things in there that are precious. Let's take the absolute extreme example of somebody, let's say, who has an abuse history. Nobody would dial that up. Nobody would want that. Nobody would say that's good. Nobody would wish for that. would never hope for that. You would hope for and pray for and wish for that it didn't exist on the planet, but tag, it's happened to you. You have some sort of deep trauma linked to that. What is the gift that could be in that? Well, one of the gifts is I care about this and I want to do something about this. Mm. I tell some of that story in a, a TEDx talk uh, of mine. You can Google it and find it easily. There's a couple of mine out there. And the one with the bigger number of views, the earlier one, walks through that history where in the act work I discovered, kind of knew it was there, but it hit emotionally about some of the domestic violence that was going on in my home when I was really young and how important that was to me in defining my life purpose. And so even the worst things we can remember or think of contain within them a gift. And the gift are the seeds of wisdom that comes when you realize that things can go awry and you want a degree of uh, sensitivity to that. You don't want to go home with somebody who's unsafe. You don't want to form a relationship with somebody who is not really there to support you, but you know, is going to turn on you and, or you name it. And uh, so keeping your feelers out is important, even if what you feel isn't necessarily happy. If you had uh, sandpaper on your desk, your desk and you didn't have the feelers in your fingers to feel it, you might rub yourself raw, not meaning to, but we, if we can feel it, they say, I need to do something about that. Uh, I need to cover it or change it or deal with it. And in the same way, uh, all of our experiences have a place. Have a, they're not, there's no eraser. There's no delete button in the nervous system. You're not subtracting anything. And if you try to subtract it, you've just added to it. Probably many people have realized that, you know, as you focus on the things you don't want, they actually become more of a focus and you have them more. And so the wisdom of receiving the gift that's offered when the gift is the wisdom of your own history is something that takes a little support for us to do. We all kind of know it's better than the alternative, but our logical problem-solving mind tells us to run away, fight and hide when things show up that are difficult. And we pay the price for it until we've learned that uh, we need to do something different. And a liberated mind walks through why that is and how you can do something different. Yeah. And with that, Steve, would you mind leading into, you describe how, you know, nobody wants to put themselves in an unsafe situation and given someone's history, they might have a predisposition to be putting themselves in a more vulnerable situation because they're not recognizing the signs. How does, how does that link to acceptance? Because I don't think it's just in safety. It's probably in so many areas where we have a disconnect, so many but, areas. but I, you maybe the listeners well, don't know about the um, research that sort of indicates if someone, for instance, maybe has a history of sexual sure, abuse, they're when, more likely to be abused and things like this well that metaphor i was using of having your feelers out of being able to really sort of sense what is there with the tips of your fingers sort of shows you what the research shows which is mm. and i really have to say this with some care because it sounds almost like blaming the victim and it's not it's empowering mm. people to step up to their own history in a way 
that allows them to use it for good in their own life. And what happens when you avoid, you suppress, you deny, you look away as a habit is that you essentially are diminishing your capacity to feel, sense, and remember with precision. If, for example, take something like depression, people who engage in these high levels of what we call experiential avoidance, of running from your own insides as a way to manage your outsides, eventually you know less and less about what's happened in your life. There's a, an autobiographical memory deficit. People who are chronically depressed don't know how to talk about their own childhood, their family history, and so forth with the details that are needed to, to learn from it. It gets fuzzy, it gets vague, it was awful, it was terrible, I hated it. No, that is not what happened. That's your evaluation of what happened. What actually happened? Well, I don't know, but it was awful, it was terrible. No, awful, terrible, and it's hard because you are in a habit of kind of fuzzing up and not looking. And it seems logical because who would want to really feel with clarity things that are very painful? to be able to remember thoughts that are very shameful or, or self-judgmental. Uh, nobody would sort of logically choose that, but psychologically it's the wise thing to do because it then empowers you to carry the whole of your history and to learn from it. And so you can't do it just by wishing it, um, but you can do it if you learn the micro skills that are needed. And we know what those are, and those are the flexibility skills. That's why psychological flexibility, one big reason why it's so powerful, is that it takes us off the useless effort to distract and deny from our own history and focuses on our attention instead on learning from that, coming into the present moment where new things can happen, and to do that consciously where freedom of choice is possible and then to begin to build the rest of our history by choice organized around what we deeply care about instead of what we habitually avoid or are afraid of. And so you begin to create habits of values-based action. And if you groove that, even when you're watching, even when you're a little mindless, you're not thinking about it too clearly, you're kind of still doing things that move you forward instead of move things things that move you backwards. So it sounds like a, um, you know, a simple formula and I don't want to con convey that it's uh, some sort of panacea or a Pollyanna-ish kind of a perspective on life, but it's uh, empowering to know a, a set of processes that are not overwhelming. There's only six of them and they're kind of be, can be organized into three things, being more open, being more uh, aware and in the moment, be more actively engaged in life. Or you can summarize it into one, being more psychologically flexible. And if you learn how to do that, you have a tool that you can use uh, almost anywhere you go. So with that, you mentioned earlier that the logical mind can jump in when you're trying to practice acceptance. So some of these skills that you mentioned, you know, being more open in, in the moment, how do they link with this I guess, impetus that the mind has to move into the like, logical sort of problem solving or distracting, uh, distracting mode. Yeah, I think what we're dealing with here is uh, we have an evolutionary mismatch. We have this new thing, this new kid on the block that you and I are doing right now. We're engaged in symbolic uh, processes, symbolic learning processes. We're talking in words and sounds that are 
arbitrary, but they have deep meaning for us because they're inside a language game that we've learned how to play. And human beings have only been doing that for somewhere between 200,000 years and 2.8 million years. We know it's in that range because the common ancestors of the chimpanzees are about 2.8 million years ago. And uh, language trained chimpanzees don't do what your 12 month old baby does that leads you into the human verbal community. And one of the things that's exciting and important about the ACT work is that it's built on a science of human language and cognition called relational frame theory. That isn't just, oh, it's a theory or my idea. No, it's an active research program with several hundred studies that can do things like take children who don't know how to speak and teach them how to, or to children who don't have a sense of self or aren't able to take the perspective of other people or have uh, educational intellectual deficits. And by using our RFT uh, training, raising those skills up and moving them more into the mainstream of, of human life. But in the areas that we use and act, it's often used to sort of essentially put the problem solving mind on a leash. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that problem solving is so broadly useful to be able to use our symbolic skills to break apart complexity, to evaluate it, to wish for different outcomes and to seek them out. That's a wonderful thing to do when you're, you know, planning how to invest your money or how to build something or fix your car. It's not so good when you bring it to uh, something like your own history that's not going to go away or to appreciating the consciousness uh, of others. There's a time, and we all have this skill, when really what life is asking of you is something more like what might happen tonight if you were to see a spectacular sunset, which is to observe, describe, and appreciate. You know, if a spectacular sunset shows up, now's the time to put away the instructor's manual, the fix-it manual, the problem-solving repertoire, and do something more like what poets know how to do or what you do with your friends and lovers or what you, you do at your best with your own heart of observing, describing, and appreciate. We all know if, if we see that sunset, to stop talking and to say something like, wow, and maybe a few things like, look at how pink it is. You're not going to say, you know, man, it would be a lot better if that cloud was shaped like this and it needs a little more blue, God. And this isn't as good as the last sunset. You know, I, I wish I had that sunset. I don't want this sunset. You know, so you might do that, but if you do immediately, the joy of that sunset's gone. Yeah. And in the same way, we need to bring this sunset set of skills to appreciating our, our relationships with others, to showing up to our own history, to, you know, being with ourselves in a way that's whole and unconditional and uh, compassionate and self-compassionate and confident, uh, confident in the original meaning of the word. Which Would you mind describing that? Because confidence is a hot topic, isn't it? I, I love it. I love the etymology. The, the Latin fides, which is in fidens, it means fidelity, but the original uh, word meant faith. And con just means with, it's a prefix meaning that. So how do we act with faith with ourselves? And, you know, often, especially in areas like leadership, high performance, social relationships, things like that, we think that we're going to get confident by sort of attacking our weaknesses and uh, 
you know, criticizing ourselves for them and wishing they'd go away or hiding them so at least other people can't see them. And all of those things are about the least confident thing you can do because they're, they show no faith at all in yourself. If you're really going to have faith in yourself, stop running from yourself. Show up and show up inside the possibility that it's okay to be you and that your experience is valid and, and your hopes and dreams are of importance. Your values matter. Your life matters. What you do, your behavior matters. That's a confident thing to do. And that includes even acting with faith when you have self-doubt, acting with faith when you have uh, sources of pain that are almost overwhelm you, uh, when you remember that abuse history or that failure or betrayal or a uh, really frightening moment or, you know, life's asking you, is it okay to be you even with this? And if you can find the resources, not just the wordy mindy part, but the full whole heart open part that can say yes, even to that, man, you're, you're ready for a pretty powerful journey because uh, you can do wonderful things inside the yes of being you and uh, go read the books and the, the poems and the stories about people who have lived amazing and important uh, lives. And almost always they come down to, you know, this above all to thine own self be true. They has this quality of creating a context where it's okay to be you. And how do you do that? You don't do it just by wishing. You don't do it by pushing away self-doubt. That's the exact opposite. That's an illusion of mind. I'll be okay when. Well, I'll be okay when. And then you make a list. That is another way to say it. I'm, I'm not okay now because. Yeah. It's the same sentence. And how are you going to show up whole and free if your very first move is, I'm not okay yet, but I will be later. So you, it it's... Uh, a little trick of mind that problem solving uh, always fails to deliver what you really want when it's supplied to your own sense of uh, of uh, your own sense of self and your role in life, the, the, whether or not you belong here. And the act can help cut through that. It can give you this clean choice of. Uh, have I had enough of running away? And if you have, let's make the choice instead to plant your feet and uh, kind of reach that place where uh, I will not run from me. This kind of relates to the opening up that you were describing, doesn't it? That you're opening up to all of your experiences in that moment and, and going from there with faith, with the confidence. Is that how you sort of see it linking? <laughs> Yeah, and you know, yeah. most people have had spiritual experiences where this has happened. You know, about 98% of the human population say that spirituality is important and they've had some kind of spiritual experience. And sometimes it's in the context of uh, a loving relationship. Sometimes it's uh, just something that you, you hit inside your own sense of self-awareness. And in those moments, almost always, there's this expansive quality of oneness and connection and the inherent okayness of just being you and not in this kind of self-aggrandizing, you know, I'm the best, I'm the greatest, uh, not that, but something more like letting go of the conditionality mm -hmm. of, you know, if, maybe, when, if I, 
and instead stepping into the present moment as as all that is necessary for you to take the next step and the next and the next along a pathway that's positive and healthy and whole. So you mentioned the present moment and stepping into that, that it's this capacity to be in the present moment, to be, you know, aware and in that moment. How, how can someone practice this? It's, you know, I guess a skill that can be, can be learned, can be practiced, space can be, be created for it. What would you advise as a first step? <laughs> well, as a first step, you know, start wherever you are. And sometimes that first step might mean, uh, you know, really feeling the fear that's already there or opening up to the self-doubt that's there. I think in the modern world, we've so challenged ourselves with the exposure to pain and comparison and judgment. You know, the toxic triad, it's in the computer that's in your pocket. Mm. You're going to be able to see horrifying things that happened over the last hour or two at any time around the world. You're going to see a lot of comparison. And by the way, you're always going to be on the short end of the stick, someone else, at least their Instagram posts are going to look a lot better. Highlight reel. Your insides. And the, and comparison. I mean, we're going to, we're judgment rather. We're going to step into our news media streams that fit our particular biases or, uh, you know, and hear how idiotic and stupid other people are because they don't think like us and so forth. Well, those three things, uh, really produce a new reality for us as human beings. And young people are suffering, you know, they're more than a standard deviation, higher levels of stress, anxiety, and depression in young people now than 30 years ago. And we know that it's not just self-report, it's not just that they've learned to say the words because things like suicide rates are going up. So, I mean, the it's undeniably true that it's just harder for people, even though, it's the lowest level of violence worldwide we've ever had, the lowest level of poverty we've ever had, the lowest level of malnutrition and disease we've ever had in the history of the planet right now. And yeah, we've got lots of wars and things to worry about. But right now, if you just add it up, we're doing better than we ever have in every area except our own psychology and behavior. And so how do we step into that present moment? It's not by accident that right at this moment, People are exploring things like mindfulness work, mm-hmm. you know, yoga, uh, you know, retreats, uh, because we're trying to find a way to sort of create modern minds for this busy, judgmental, comparative, evaluative uh, modern world we've created. And what's in a liberated mind is a set of skills. I mean, some of them start with the simple thing of noticing the present moment just in sensation. Mm-hmm. of just felt sense of taking the time to feel what your body feels like. Uh, some of it uh, may involve, you know, deliberately opening up to and exploring uh, in, in through a set of emotional deepening processes, what it's like to feel particular emotions or to think particular thoughts or to have particular memories that you have. And uh, there's a, hundreds of practices, not just in act, but uh, you can hardly pick up the newspaper or, your favorite magazine and not see some story somewhere that has something to do with coming into the present moment more mindfully and being able to be here now inside the cacophony we've created technologically. 
Yeah. And Stevie, you mentioned, um, yoga, which, which is something that I, you know, I'm very passionate about and really believe in. And I wonder how that fits in, you know, you mentioned it in the context of a liberated mind as a possible, you know, uh, attention training skill. How would you see yoga maybe fits in? Cause you also mentioned being able to have this felt sense experience as part of mindfulness and awareness. Yeah. And there actually are, uh, uh, act yoga combinations in research and in practice, and there's a, quite a number of certified yoga teachers who use ACT. We've done research here at my university um, looking at how to combine them, and it's kind of fun because, uh, for example, there's a whole set of perspective-taking exercises that are built into ACT. There's also a number of poses in yoga that involve like being upside down or having different uh, perspective, the, the acceptance skills that are in that, but there's a number of poses that might actually uh, produce a sense of uh, stretching or even a sense of pain that's not actually harmful to you, but worth kind of settling into what does it feel like to stretch that much and so forth. So people can use the flexibility skills to do yoga. They can use yoga to learn the flexibility skills. And we've uh, done some randomized trials comparing, comparing these things and combining these things. and we know that just like the contemplative practice uh, methods that are there, uh, some of the things that are in our wisdom and spiritual traditions, the things that are in that uh, wing of work, this ancient technology of yoga, so many different flavors and brands, but they have this common theme of coming into the present moment through your own body and working on your attention and psychological flexibility skills in that context. Uh, both for body and mind reasons. Uh, uh, I think a lot of people who like yoga find that the act work empowers the, the work. Mm. And um, uh, it looks as though from the research uh, literature that's there, they each have something to contribute. And okay. uh, so it's a, a healthy thing to explore their interconnections and uh, so with they each have something to contribute, yoga brings something a little bit of a unique flavor to the act work. And exactly. the yoga is um, bolstered, I imagine, substantially by bringing act into it. Yeah, I think that's a, where the research seems to be landing as something there. You know, any one method, I mean, I, I am not one of those ones who, even in the act work, say, you really have to do this or this or this. And I get scolded for it sometimes because there are some or you take something like contemplative practice. There's so many different forms of contemplative practice, and most people who have found their way using them are sometimes focused on the method and the particular dharma, the particular way that they view this. And that's fine, but Western science has something to contribute to, and most of those methods are, are uh, ancient uh, parts of our wisdom traditions. Uh, what I, about 40% of the randomized trials done on ACT have used contemplative practice as an example. A much smaller number have used yoga, but, uh, but they're there too. And what I say to people is if it doesn't work for you, if you give it an, an honest try and it's just not your, your flavor, uh, try something else, you know, mm. and let's see what is most helpful for you given your history, your preferences, your background. And, uh, uh, you know, I think the, um, 
the message received is more important than the specific method or the messenger, you know, that we shouldn't get too attached to a particular way or, but that doesn't mean not being skillful in a particular way, I mean, just being open to the possibility that uh, there's a number of different ways forward. Well, you describe creating one's own toolkit, you know, that that's yeah. something that, you know, you describe beautifully in a liberated mind and, and listeners could also go to your website where they can actually access the toolkit, which is an incredible gift. And it's this concept of being able to pick tools or supplies that are going to be useful for you as an individual developing your psychological flexibility. They don't have to all be, you know, your cup of tea, so to speak. You choose what works. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a good thing to do. It, it, sometimes it gets a little scary to people. They mean, well, what, what should I use? And I say, try different things. Give them an honest try. We actually have kind of a set of rules as to how to build your toolkit. And they're logical rules. They're basically, make sure you have two or three things in each of the areas. It'd be like making sure you had a, a screwdriver and a hammer. You know, don't try to use your screwdriver as a hammer. It's a lousy hammer. Don't try to use <laughs> your hammer as a screwdriver. It's not going to do a very good job. And in the same way, these having a, a model that gives you some of the core elements of psychological flexibility, even they all, oh, they all kind of hang out. In a way, it's really one thing, but it's three things that has six things. But when you learn the should six- we actually, and, just sorry to jump in, but should we describe for the listeners what these six things are and how they parch into yeah, three? Because I, I don't think, I think we've- do yeah. I could do it in a, in a short paragraph, which Fabulous. is- you know, spinning around the circle that uh, we often use to present it. And I'll put the, this in the show notes as well as a link to your website so people can go and see it and link to these things. But just yeah. for the listeners, what can they visualize? So if, if, if we take this more perspective taking or conscious part of us and turn towards our thoughts, feelings, memories, and bodily sensations and learn to open up to them in a way that receives the gift that's inside them, and then learn how to put the mind on a leash and not be entangled. So when our mind is talking to us, we can use it when it's helpful and just listen to it and move on when it's not. And then bring our attentional process to what's here in the present, inside and out. What does this moment afford? What's possible? What could happen here? And let's focus on what brings meaning and purpose into my life by choice. Just between me and the person in the mirror, these are the qualities of being and doing that I want to put into my behavior. How would I do that in this next moment with actual choices and habits and things that would be able to be seen and make a difference in my life? Those are the six I just spun through of, from this distinction between the, the, per, the conscious person and the th things you're conscious of being emotionally open, cognitively disentangled in the present moment in a way that allows you to allocate your attention flexible, fluidly, and voluntarily towards your own values and the habits that you build around them. Those are six, but we can chunk it into three, which is basically open up, show up, and move on, you know, the, uh, you know, to uh, uh, cluster these uh, six into three things. But it's really one thing, it's being more psychologically flexible of sort of uh, taking what shows up and then uh, moving towards uh, what it is that you want to create in your next uh, moment. 
I love the metaphor of flexibility just because I'd jump back in and go, oh, like that's like yoga. <laughs> you're slowly working on cultivating flexibility, whatever that may mean, but taking it off the mat and into, into life and actually using your tools to, to cultivate this flexibility day in, day out, because it's not something that you just get to, is it? And going back to the toolkit idea, what we then do is suggest that, you know, you have three or four things, start with just one or two or three, you can add them and use them repeatedly because some of these skills uh, uh, are generally useful. And if, you, if it doesn't land well, if you've, you've lived with it for a week, you've tried it, it doesn't seem to help you, put that tool aside. Let's get another tool that would fit into that same part of the drawer of the toolkit. And when you end up over a period of time, you end up with a, you know, two or three things in each of those six areas that are your go-to methods. And then you can keep adding to that as long as uh, you're skilled and able really to rely on the tools that you have. And uh, the metaphor of a toolkit reminds you to, to go back to uh, what's really working for you. And this uh, quality of you being the one to choose reminds you that uh, this is really about your life. This is not about uh, some book writer or, or some list of shoulds, musts, oughts, and have tos, you know, uh, it's kind of more like a personalized medicine approach. You know, if you were to go to a physician and they said, you know, all my patients get this medication, uh, you might want to find a different physician. <laughs> yeah. You want to have a physician who's going to have a conversation with you about what your preferences are, what your experiences are, but also is going to do the diagnostic work to find out what do you really need? Yeah. And in the same way, you know, what do you really need as a set of skills right now to move forward in your life? Let's figure out a way to build those skills and to use those skills and keep adding to them based on their success for you, not just their supposed success for others. And so I want to vet them with science. And we've done that. I mean, you take these little components in the toolkit, every single one almost without a single exception that I list in a liberated mind has been tested in research, sometimes several times. But that doesn't mean it's gonna work for you. Any more than you know, that medication that works for most people is gonna work for you. No, it may, it may not. Or that food that you know, your friend says, boy, when I eat that, I never get hungry. And when you eat it, you're starving all day long. I mean, you, you, you've gotta trust your own body, your own experience, your own psychology enough that it's okay to be you and to do what works for you. And that spirit of um, evidence-based guide for a self-exploration is what's in a liberated mind, that we can both have the science, you know, not disappear into woo-woo and I don't want to redo the 60s again. You know, I don't, want to, <laughs> I don't particularly want to be reading astrology charts again and casting tarot cards. I mean, yeah, if it works for you, okay. But, it's you know, got to bring I, you some I, joy. Yeah. Yeah. But I kind of like Western science as a filter, yeah. but I don't like it as a dictator. Yeah. Mm, and that's really What's interesting because dictator comes up, you described the dictator within in the book. And I know that's probably a whole other conversation to go down, but I guess individuals can obviously grab your book, but would you mind just sharing quickly why, why we would do this, why we would like show up and accept things because we've kind of talked to getting on with things in action, but could we talk just very briefly about values? Because like, that's the heart of this, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, and take the values piece. I was talking about one of the gifts that's for sure inside 
even a difficult history is just that knowing what doesn't work and knowing what you care about. And you know, it's not by accident. You just look, I mean, if somebody's had something horrible to them, they often end up with that being really at the core of some of the pro-social things that they want to do. You know, mothers against drunk driving. You know, you're going to have mothers there who lost their children to drunk driving. Uh, you know, if, if somebody's collecting money for a multiple sclerosis, I can almost guarantee you that somewhere in the family, somebody has MS. And so can we turn pain into purpose? And I'd say, yeah, we can do that. And, and one way, to, you can actually explore this. And if you just take something that you really struggle with, something that your mind tells you you need to get rid of or diminish or uh, make go away before you can be whole and free, and imagine writing it down on a sheet of paper. And those are the kind of things that our mind tells us we have to somehow rip up, burn, throw away, make go away, erase. And yet, if it was there, and you can even do this physically just to see what it's like, you know, maybe it's a panic attack, or maybe it's a severe, a depressive episode. If you were to turn that over, turn that sheet over, and now it has a blank side, and write down, what does that suggest you deeply care about? because we hurt where we care and we care where we hurt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've never met somebody, for example, who's uh, socially anxious who doesn't want to be with people. If you didn't have that combination, you'd just be a hermit. And, what, and nobody's going to go to a, a shrink and say, oh, I need help. I want to be a hermit. Yeah, you just go be a hermit. I mean, if that's really what you want to do, <laughs> do that. And, you know, there's lots of, but, but no, what people are talking about is, I, I just can't stand the feeling that's there precisely because people are of importance to me. They're frightening to me. Okay. The, what I say to, cl to clients sometimes, this is, you know, this effort that you had to tear up, burn, throw away. You could do that with a sheet of paper, but you're going to have to do both sides. You're going to do it. And almost everybody says, no, I don't want to do it. They wanted a one-side sheet of paper where I could, for example, throw away social anxiety, <laughs> but still have uh, yearning to be with people and caring about people. Well, for you, that might not be the way that comes as a package. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, love and loss comes as a package, right? If you really love somebody, you know they could die. Something could happen to them. You know that. You sense it. You sense the vulnerability of it. Well, if you really don't want to sense that vulnerability, my suggestion to you is not to love people because it comes as a packet. And so this values piece, there's four ways in that I know of and I talk about in the book that are reliable. And a big one in is your own pain. Flip it over, mm -hmm. look carefully at what that suggests you want and care about. You can also flip over your joys. Yeah. What's inside those joyful, sweet moments. You can flip over heroes, the heroes and guides that you have. Why do you respect? Why do you hold up somebody as kind of an icon? What did they stand for? And isn't that something that you want to put into your behavior? And you can also sort of take ownership and take authorship of your capacity to write your own story. If you were to do that, what's the next chapter going to be about? Not at the level of the characters, you don't know. The, the events, you don't know. The theme that you can set. You can set whether or not you're writing a tragedy or a hero's journey. Um, you don't know whether or not you're going to get an odd medical diagnosis tomorrow or, you know, an accident is going to happen to somebody that you love and the email will show up. Life doesn't give you guarantees like that. But what it 
what you can do is sort of uh, take responsibility for the authorship of your own life. And those are the four ways that I know. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote a blog here just the last few days. If you know, people are interested in my blogs, you can usually see them on Psychology Today. Uh, I also go to Thrive, Medium, and uh, I put them on my website, but stephenchayes.com. But uh, I was writing a blog about how to use felt sense and metaphor and your own body and your uh, 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 imaging, your, your capacity for metaphors to dig into uh, what you really want when you're facing a difficult choice or an important choice. Um, and what values are about is the whole of you choosing the qualities of your, the qualities that you want to put into your actions. It's not this mindy, judgmental, I have to be like this because. It's more like what is so for me is that, is that being like this is of importance. You know, I want to be a loving person. I want to be a compassionate person. or I want to make a difference with regard to human suffering or whatever it is. And that kind of motivation, when you touch it, is inexhaustible and it's yours. Nobody can take it away. If you're motivated by money, somebody can take take it away. Yeah. If you're motivated by praise, somebody can take it away. You're motivated by uh, your compassion to, for others. Uh, nobody can take that away. Mm -hmm. You can live it day in, day out. <laughs> you can put it in your behavior day in, day out, and uh, it's between you and the person in the mirror. And that's kind of a better place to put motivation. One of the problems with motivation, it comes from a word that means to put in motion. It's the same root uh, word as the word emotion. And one of the problems with it is our mind sort of thinks, oh, I don't have it, so I need to get it. Values are more like owning what's already here. Yeah. So you're owning what's here. And I guess with that, you know, Steve, you alluded to your TED Talk and it's also in your book. So people can go and yeah. have a listen and connect them with your own journey. You know, that experience of being in a DV home growing up and your desire to go forward and to help people. And you're here today sharing with the listeners ways that they can actually take steps to live a life that is meaningful and valuable for them, how they can actually put these things in action. So I think what you've given here in regards to how individuals can get in contact contact with their values, you know, flipping their pain, um, you know, connecting in with here and now the joys that they're experiencing to, you know, take ownership and write their own story and really think of what they're standing for. That's an incredible place for them to start. And then I think that hopefully everyone will go and check out your tool, your toolbox that you've put on your website for people to access as well as, you know, grabbing a copy of a liberated mind so that they get the full picture of the flexibility skills and how they they can create the life that that is an alignment where there is room for the richness of human experience. <laughs> well, excuse the commercial, but if they go to stephenchayes.com and put a forward slash and then a liberated mind, all lowercase with hyphens between the words, a hyphen liberated hyphen mind, it'll take you to an area where you can uh, download uh, some of those things, these toolkit uh, supports, things like that. There's a whole set of things, but also uh, some some freebies that I, uh, I give away that go with with the book. One that I really love is a, a cartoon version of Act, uh, a set of 17 pictures that my daughter, my 28 year old, who's quite uh, an accomplished artist, 
uh, Drew. And uh, she, her dictator within is just awesome. And uh, <laughs> you know, some of these metaphors kind of, so each of the flexibility processes and are, are kind of characterized visually. And uh, it's one of several things that people can get if they go to the website and uh, uh, just say that you want them, I'll send them to you. But, That's um, a really beautiful gift. And people could even, you know, we talked about how we carry this, this computer around in our back pocket all the time, take photos of those, you know, dictator within and whatnot, the beautiful drawings that your daughter's done as little prompts, because if we're going to be looking at our phones anyway, might as well have some reminders there and maybe even, you know, a photo of your toolkit outline and things. So it's easily accessible. Yeah. I've been sent by some people, things who've pulled them into their uh, screens, you know. And, yeah. Uh, I don't know if I would suggest this, but somebody even just last week sent me uh, a tattoo of uh, an act <laughs> in, uh, on, their, on their arm. Um, but, you know, using values triggers like that is uh, one of the things that's uh, uh, sometimes recommended. I wrote a blog about it recently about how to use values triggers, we do it all the time. I mean, I got my wedding ring right here. Yeah. It's, a, it's a values triggers to remind me of my uh, wife, my commitment to her, my love for her. And um, in the same way, you can use tools to help support you in a values-based journey, more accepting, more mindful journey by uh, kind of using psychological principles that allow us to bring uh, skills into our moments by deliberately programming our environment to make it more likely. And um, that's in a liberated mind, but it's uh, mm. uh, a number of skills that are, are there in the set of things. Once you go on an ACT journey, you'll realize there's a lot of resources out there. <laughs> yeah. Of course, there's a lot of books. That's one thing. I mean, I sort of originated it or started it, but I, I always say I'm a co-developer because around the world, uh, Many, many people have developed it by adding uh, metaphors and exercises, and not just therapists, clients have too. Yeah. Some of the really important uh, classic kind of canonical exercises that are in ACT, I mean, I still remember the names of the clients who came up with them. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they happily let me use them. So um, it's uh, a really inclusive way of being you know acknowledging the clients who come up with these ideas including them in this process of development and also having this openness to trying new things to seeing what works for the individual there's you know a, a clear lack of rigidity which i guess highlights the psychological flexibility that you embody in this body of research as well as how you conduct yourself in the world well i think if we could learn, get the spirit of that you know if you could just have that spirit of every day, at least one new thing, one kind thing, one values-based thing that pushes out a little bit and then allow life itself to be our teacher as we, as we try new things and see how they land, see how our hearts and minds move, how our behavior moves. You know, there are people listening to us right now who feel uh, capt uh, caught, who feel stuck, who feel like they're in a cul-de-sac or they're in a hole and they can't get out. And it's a, it's a desperate feeling. Yeah. Um, and it's not true. It's an illusion of mind. Uh, and one step at a time, one, you know, small healthy thing at a time, people can learn to walk out of uh, those cul-de-sacs or holes they might find themselves in. And there's a place where the research is helpful. 
you want to focus on things that are known to be likely to be helpful and the, the six flexibility processes i i said uh, we've kind of hacked the code yeah. that's a little arrogant maybe to say it that way but you know we have spent a lot of time more than almost any other approach in psychology sitting on so on top of the processes of change and psychological flexibility is a powerful set of processes of change that not just in act but in many other areas of life now are showing up if you to go to Google Scholar and just put in the words psychological flexibility, you see several thousand studies for people around the world uh, trying to learn how best to become more flexible. Thank you so much for sharing your tips, your tricks, your wisdom for actually cultivating psychological flexibility and moving forward in a direction that's meaningful for individuals, you know, going forth to liberate their minds, so to speak. Um, I really appreciate your time today, Steve. It's been really generous and I think really, really informative and rich. Well, thank you for that. And I hope I've been of use to the people who are listening and uh, that you find some uh, support and empowerment uh, inside the ACT work, or uh, if that's not for you, inside any of the other traditions that are there that'll help you work on your acceptance, mindfulness, and value skills. Uh, those are things that are worth focusing on, and they uh, help us step, in, step up to the challenge of the modern world. Yeah. I would love for you to be able to sign off of this podcast with peace, love, and life because uh, that might be another values trigger, is it in a way, every time you sign off on an email or a blog post? Peace, love, and life is what I put on the bottom of uh, my uh, emails. And below that, I, I then put my dash S, which is my little uh, email signature. For But below that is a little saying, which is... Uh, uh, at the very end of my uh, TEDx talk, the, the first one, which is uh, love isn't everything, it's the only thing. And so uh, I actually had made, uh, we have a house uh, up at Lake Tahoe, my wife and I, and I uh, had made a little uh, set of wire words that are put on these kind of uh, weathered wooden uh, back uh, backboards and uh, one of them says peace and one of them says love and one of them says life so oh that's gorgeous that sounds <laughs> like a really special place and a lovely reminder yeah I do remind myself of that for very much the same reason that I wear this wedding ring because it's uh, lands for me in a way that reminds me of what's important Thank you. And thank you for sharing that because I think that's important to know that, you know, you've been practicing this stuff for many years. You know, you described a journey for ACT becoming the toolkit that it is, you know, this, this therapy, this training, but that you're still practicing it every day. And this is the journey we're all heading down together is, is a practice. Yeah, I think we're all on a journey to, to learn how best to be our whole selves. And uh, ACT may, is not uh, the answer for everybody, but it is uh, something that is helpful to make people around the world. And so, uh, if uh, you're listening to this and you feel like you're stuck, you know, give it a give it a try. Give it a give it a go. It's not expensive. You can get the materials for less than twenty bucks, and you can find a lot of resources online for free. 
Yeah. And uh, I even listen to a liberated mind as an audible book, you know, even if, even if your, your day is such that sitting down and reading isn't as easeful, you can listen and you can do all the exercises in the notes on your phone. Like there's, there's ways to connect with this material that will suit each individual and and lifestyle. Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I hope that you found the interview with Professor Hayes as moving as I did. I think he does a brilliant job of inspiring and guiding us in the cultivation of psychological flexibility through learning to be open, in the moment, and actively engaged. I hope that you do get the chance to check out A Liberated Mind. You can find more about this and act on his website, stephenchays.com, and remember to also submit your receipt so that you can get the beautiful bonuses that he mentioned, including that cartoon version that his daughter created. All of this information, these links, and further information can be found with the show notes at drcaitlin.com, along with a full episode transcript. Next week, I'll be joined by the brilliant Dr. Emily Sandoz, who shares about living with your body and other things you hate. Looking forward to connecting with you then. Be well, and bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.